Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurologist shares his positive outlook for anyone diagnosed with multiple sclerosis today. The vast majority of people live their lives with MS without disability. Um, we only see the folks who have a visible disability. And a gynecologist tells about a new non-hormonal birth control option for women. The acidity of the gel helps keep the sperm from being able to move up through the vagina into the cervix and into the uterus to fertilize an egg. All that, some expert advice for preventing kidney stones, and a visit from the Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll learn about FEXI, a new non-hormonal birth control option for women. But first, a neurologist tells how improved treatments, better health care, and lifestyle changes have helped to increase the life expectancy for people with multiple sclerosis. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Treatment breakthroughs, improved healthcare, and lifestyle changes have helped to increase the life expectancy for people with multiple sclerosis. Today, I'm turning to Dr. Corey McGraw for an overview of MS. He's an assistant professor of neurology, and among his patients are people living with multiple sclerosis. Dr. McGraw, I'm grateful that you're here today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start by talking about some of the common symptoms of MS that people may experience. What yeah. causes optic neuritis and or the loss of vision in one eye? Absolutely. So, um, you know, multiple sclerosis can cause uh, many different neurological symptoms. Um, however, um, some of the more common and, and specific symptoms include, as you just described, optic neuritis. This is this is loss of vision of one eye, and it, it typically uh, is a graying of vision, blurring of vision that evolves over a few days to a few weeks. That's one one hint that uh, neurological symptom might be MS, that it evolves over days to weeks. It's oftentimes associated with pain of eye movements. So patients will, will experience pain in the eye, around the eye. Um, and, and they may also have headache either around the eye or, or on the same side of the head. Um, the vision loss um, oftentimes is accompanied by loss of color vision. That's another hint that this might be inflammation within the optic nerve or optic neuritis. And classically sort of described as a loss of um, the color red. Um, so people will, um, will experience not so much a, you know, red turns to gray, but they may notice that the reds are less sharp or, or, or more orange in color when they look through the affected eye. Wow, and I know there's a lot of other symptoms. For instance, um, weakness that might impair walking. Does that all also come on weeks to days? That's right. So, so again, one of the sort of key um, ways we differentiate different causes of neurological symptoms is by the time of their onset. So, um, you know, in in contradistinction, um, stroke symptoms, which I'm sure. 
um, our listeners have heard a lot about um, are um, are what we call maximal in intensity on onset. So they evolve over seconds to minutes and are quite severe within minutes to hours. Um, so that's one way that we can help differentiate the cause of neurological symptoms is, is the length of time. So we we usually say that an MS symptom um, is going to last at least 24 hours, um, not less than that, but really days to weeks. So it may take days to weeks as it's building, but does it does it come and go or does it become a constant symptom? Yeah, absolutely. It can be either. So um, you mentioned walking. So people may notice imbalance in walking, weakness in one or both legs. It oftentimes starts with uh, symptoms such as, you know, more difficulty getting out of the car, getting upstairs, um, walking long distances. Um, and, and then over days to weeks, it evolves to being more and more prominent. Um, for my patients who are diagnosed with MS, they oftentimes wait a few days to a week before they call me to let me know, you know, this symptom, it's, it's, it's getting worse, it's happening more frequently, um, and so I thought I'd better call. But you're right, some symptoms can fluctuate. So, for instance, numbness and tingling, another common symptom in MS, um, may, may be present for a few minutes to a few hours then go away for a while, come back and forth. It may be more bothersome at night when people are laying in bed and they're not distracted by the day's activities. But the key is that those fluctuating symptoms become more prominent and more continuous over that period of time. How good a job do you think primary care doctors do at identifying patients with MS? And at what point, I mean, because some of these symptoms sound a little vague or maybe they could be something else. And at what point do you think people need to be referred to a neurologist like yourself who has specialization? We think about a million people in the United States have multiple sclerosis um, and perhaps, you know, 2.5 million people worldwide. So most MS care is done by primary care doctors, right? Um, and they're certainly the first line of defense in, in recognizing symptoms of MS. Um, I think they do. I think they do a very good job. So uh, the job of a primary care provider is to recognize that that um, that uh, a patient is experiencing something abnormal and and refer them appropriately. And um, and you know I think we have wonderful uh, primary care providers here in our region that do a good job of recognizing these things. How is MS usually diagnosed? Uh, multiple sclerosis is is first and foremost diagnosed clinically, so it's it's based on um, symptoms um, that come on over time, as as we described. Um, uh, most patients who are diagnosed with MS are diagnosed with what we call relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis, and but this is about eighty five percent of MS patients. Uh, and um, the symptoms start with what we call attacks or exacerbations of new neurological symptoms. Um, uh, they're, they're also called relapses. That's where the name relapsing remitting comes from. And this is, again, the onset of these you know, notable new neurological symptoms um, that evolve over time. And then actually over weeks to months, they may improve on their own and they remit. And this is why we call it relapsing remitting. Um, and uh, you know those those attacks may go unrecognized initially. So often when I meet patients for the first time, they may have had a few attacks in their lives where a, a neurological symptom came out. Maybe they didn't think much of it. Maybe it was mild. It went away on its own. And of course, with symptoms that resolve on their own, we you know we may not do additional follow up. So the key in making the diagnosis is 
in those in that those sort of historical clinical events. Um, the the other type of uh, uh, multiple sclerosis are what we call the progressive forms of multiple sclerosis. And these um, specifically something called primary progressive MS um, starts from the onset with more insidiously worsening neurological symptoms. So somewhat different than the relapsing remitting forms, we see patients. Um, have the very slow onset of neurological symptoms, for instance, imbalance, weakness of legs, um, uh, double vision, dizziness, cognitive problems that um, just slowly get worse over time. We're talking year in and year out. So someone may think, well, three years ago, I could go on vacation and walk the entire beach. And, you know, two years ago, we really only could walk half of it. This year, I needed to use a cane on the beach to get down. Um, and, and it's th those sort of slowly progressive symptoms that hint at the progressive forms of MS. About 10 to 15% of people have progressive forms of MS. You mentioned that it's, you know, you, you rely a lot on the patient story to um, arrive at a diagnosis. Are there any blood tests or imaging scans or procedures that help? Yes, so so right in the right clinical context, um, oftentimes recognized by primary care providers, um, the next step is really to obtain MRIs. So these are um, scans of the central nervous system. So MS is a disease that affects um, the central nervous system. So optic nerves, brain and spinal cord. And um, uh, MS causes very typical um, uh, um, areas of scar in the brain and the spinal cord. We call them lesions. Um, basically, what that means is areas of inflammation that have occurred either in the optic nerves, brain, or spinal cord, and typically in all of those locations in patients who have MS. Most lesions, again, these areas of scars, are um, asymptomatic. So when a patient has had their first neurological symptom, you know, we may find many of these scars on the brain and the spinal cord. And that's one key component of making a diagnosis of MS. Um, laboratory testing is important in that we look for other diseases that could what we call mimic MS. So um, other uh, inflammatory diseases, uh, rheumatological diseases such as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and, and the such, certain infectious diseases, um, nutritional deficiencies. Um, we look for all of these things um, and, and um, to, to make sure that there isn't any other treatable cause. And then, and then lastly, for some patients, they may require what's called a lumbar puncture or uh, more commonly known as a spinal tap. Um, and that is where we access um, the cerebral spinal fluid. This is fluid that surrounds the brain and the spinal cord. Um, it's a relatively non-invasive procedure with a, a needle placed in the lower back. Um, and we're actually able to do some specific tests on um, the cerebral spinal fluid um, that can help confirm the diagnosis of MS. But um, often we don't need to do that because the clinical history and MRIs alone um, allow us to make the diagnosis. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Corey McGraw. He's a neurologist with expertise in multiple sclerosis. Someone who's newly diagnosed with MS is likely scared and full of questions. What would you like them to know about their outlook? 
So I, I think that's very true, you know, to hear the diagnosis of MS, um, you know, I should say that MS is very common, particularly in our region. So, um, you know, as many as maybe one in 265 people in the, in the Northeast have multiple sclerosis. So what that means is that everybody knows somebody who has MS, whether you, whether you know they have MS or whether they're friends and families and colleagues who have not disclosed that diagnosis. Uh, I am confident that everyone knows someone who has MS. What that means is that we, we know lots of folks who are living with MS who have no disability. Um, they're living their lives normally. And so what I like to let patients know is, first of all, you're not alone. Um, um, as far as neurological disease goes, it's very common. Um, the vast majority of people live their lives with MS without disability. Um, we only see the folks who have a visible disability. So when you are in the store and you're in your place of work, you may see somebody with a cane or a walker and they likely will have had to disclose their diagnosis to their friends and families and coworkers because people ask, why are you using this cane? Why are you, what is this disability you have? Um, but folks, um, for, for most people, um, they don't have any outward signs of disability. Um, and so it is a disease that people live with um, that is highly treatable. Um, it's important to recognize early, but our expectation is that people live full normal lives with MS. Now, why is it more common in the Northern US than in the South? So that's a great question. Um, you know, we don't understand what the cause of MS is. I should just briefly say we know that is what's called an autoimmune disease. So it's a disease where the immune system has learned to attack itself. Um, and in the case of multiple sclerosis, the immune system has learned to attack the optic nerves, brain, and spinal cord. Um, the underlying causes of our immune system sort of going haywire um, still are, are not clear. Here's what we do know. We know that folks who live further from the equator have a higher risk of developing multiple sclerosis. So, um, so the more northern, so in our, in our hemisphere, the more north you live from the equator, the higher your risk. We know that people who are born and raised in these higher risk regions um, continue to um, carry that risk throughout their life if they lived in that region before the age of 15. If you move away from a high-risk region to a low-risk region, so closer to the equator, early in life before the age of 15, your risk actually goes down. If you move from a low-risk region, or again around the equator, to a high-risk region before the age of 15, your risk goes up. So there's something happening early in people's lives um, uh, that has to do with distance from the equator. We think part of that has to do with exposure to the sun and vitamin D production. So vitamin D is an important immunomodulator, meaning it modulates the immune system, calms the immune system. Um, so a lack of vitamin D tends to cause autoimmunity. We think probably living further from the equator we're all exposed to more seasonal viruses um, in more northern latitudes. So we have a summer, we have a winter, we have a you know flu and cold season, and that continuous yearly pulse of virus exposure seems to have something to do with the development of MS. And you know then there are many things that we don't understand. Um, more northern latitudes may be more polluted. There may be more environmental toxins. These have never been proven. 
Um, however, you know, it is notable that that's the case. And then lastly, people have sort of a genetic predisposition. So um, MS is not inherited. So it's, it's not a one-to-one -one association between children and parents. Rather, it's sort of a combination of many, probably hundreds of genes that contribute a small risk to, uh, uh, by each gene, but in the right combination, in the right person, and then the right environmental exposures early in life seems to precipitate the disease. Is there any way to screen someone for MS so that it can be caught early? So we generally recommend um, that, um, you know, in the general public doesn't need screening. However, if someone does develop neurological symptoms that are typical for MS, it's important to, you know, undergo the appropriate evaluation um, by a neurologist. So again, things like an optic neuritis, loss of vision in one eye, loss of color vision, pain around the eye, um, vertigo, that's the sense of spinning or movement, double vision, so seeing two in your vision, um, imbalance, um, walking problems, weakness in one arm, one leg, or one side of the body, facial droop, which is sometimes called a Bell's palsy, um, severe pain in the face, sometimes called trigeminal neuralgia. These are all symptoms that um, would prompt a more thorough neurological evaluation. Let me ask you, does having multiple sclerosis raise a person's risk of other neurological diseases like stroke or or other epilepsy, things like that? It raises the risk of certain neurological problems. Epilepsy is a good example. So with these scars on the brain, these so-called lesions, you know, these are areas of damage within the brain and they can act as um, a focus for abnormal electrical activity. And that's what a seizure is. Um, and um, when people have multiple seizures over time, we call that epilepsy. So MS patients do have a higher risk of epilepsy. They have a higher risk of headaches, including migraines. They have a, a much increased risk for depression and anxiety. Those are important to recognize and treat. Um, you know, um, uh, urinary and bowel dysfunction is very common in MS, um, particularly for folks who are severely affected. Um, and, um, and other more rare neurological diseases are more common. I don't believe stroke is more common in patients with MS. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more information about multiple sclerosis with neurologist Dr. Corey McGraw after this short break. Thanks for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm speaking about multiple sclerosis with Dr. Corey McGraw, who's a neurologist with expertise in MS. Now, we don't have a cure yet for MS, but can you talk with me about what treatment can do for people? Absolutely. So in the last 40 years, we have seen a revolution in the treatment of MS. So the, the knowledge about MS, it's actually one of the, the, the most well-recognized um, neurological diseases for, for hundreds of years. Um, and because it's so unique, um, um, it, it manifests with neurological symptoms that are very notable. It oftentimes affects young people. Um, and so even, you know, 200 years ago, it was recognized as a clearly distinct um, disease entity. But for, for of course, uh, 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 centuries, we had no treatments for MS. Um, 
in the um, early 80s, there was the development of the first treatments for relapsing remitting MS. So these are what we call disease-modifying therapies. Um, these are medicines that help reduce the incidence of exacerbations in MS. Remember, attacks or relapses all mean the same thing. It helps reduce disability associated with those relapses. It reduces the severity of those relapses. So these are all very important things. And it reduces um, it reduces uh, um, the, the secondary issues coming with disability, including bladder and bowel incontinence, walking difficulties, um, and, uh, and, and these, uh, these um, disease-modifying therapies were developed throughout the, the end of the 20th century, but in the last 10 to 15 years, we've had an explosion of highly effective disease-modifying therapies. Our first oral therapies for MS, highly effective infusion therapies for MS. Um, and for the first time, we have treatments not just for relapse and remitting MS, but also for what we call primary progressive MS. So we have an approved therapy um, that helps reduce the progression of the disability in primary progressive MS. So you have a lot of medication options, it sounds like. What about, do you ever prescribe physical therapy to your MS patients? Absolutely. So disease-modifying therapies are only the first step in patients with MS. They're very important um, for preventing future disability, um, maintaining normal life, um, work, function at home, um, and we almost take them for granted now because they're um, they're they're so powerful and so useful. But um, MS care is comprehensive. So in addition to disease-modifying therapies, um, we look at a, you know, a patient in a very holistic way. Um, so um, for, for patients who have um, either an attack of MS or some more ongoing disability, physical therapy is very important. Um, for patients who have bladder and bowel involvement, we get urology and gastroenterology involved. Um, you know, it's amazing. Um, what treating uh, a little bit of urinary um, incontinence or frequency can do for people's lives. Um, you know, if you need to use the restroom 14 times a day, it's hard to sit on an airplane. It's hard to, you know, go to work. Even simple treatments can, can change people's lives. Um, you know, in addition to that, um, making sure patients have appropriate psychiatric care, including therapy and, and psychiatry is important. I mentioned depression is very common in, in MS um, and other, other comprehensive care modalities. Um, I, I think they're as important as the disease-modifying therapies in patients' day-to-day -day lives. Is there any dietary advice that you give? Um, we, we mentioned vitamin D earlier. Um, as having some connection or importance in this, do foods high in vitamin D matter? For patients who are vitamin D deficient, um, the, the underlying causes really can't be overcome by diets. We, we do recommend for folks who are vitamin D deficient that we do a vitamin D supplement, um, so, um, which, is, which is easy to do. You know, we think diet is very important in multiple sclerosis. We don't yet have good data to say um, one diet over the other. Um, I generally advocate for um, a healthy balanced diet most research in MS out there is done on the Mediterranean diet. Um, I think that's a reasonable balanced diet that patients are able to do. Um, there are many sort of fad diets out there that get promoted. Um, there's not good science to support um, any, any particular sort of fad diet. Um, so I, I just recommend a, a general balanced um, diet for my patients. 
Yeah, are are most of your patients um, female patients with MS? Yeah, that's right. So so about 70, 75% of all MS patients in the US are female. Um, so, you know, that's important to recognize, but it's also important to recognize that not all MS patients are women. Um, so oftentimes um, men who have MS um, go unrecognized. Um, so, um, you know, 25% or so of patients who have MS are men. They have a later time to diagnosis, so they have more symptoms for longer before they're diagnosed. Um, they have more primary progressive MS, um, which may go a longer period of time before being diagnosed. So I, um, I always like to remind folks that, yes, it's, it's mostly women, but, um, you know, it, it's easy to miss it in men. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and my guest is neurologist, Dr. Corey McGraw. We're talking about multiple sclerosis. Can you talk about research into the gut microbiome? Absolutely. So this is a very interesting um, field in research, and it, it goes well beyond MS. But the gut microbiome is, is a concept that um, inside of our guts, we have a whole world of of uh, bugs, of bacteria um, and parasites that are actually in balance with us. So um, they evolve as we do, and they do a lot of good things for us. So our gut bacteria are extremely important um, in in health and nutrition. Um, and this has been long recognized. But what is what is becoming more recognized? is that these, these little guys are important in helping us regulate our immune system. So we, we oftentimes think about our gut as being inside our bodies, which is true, it's, the, it's inside our abdomen, but you know, the tube that is the gut is actually connected to the outside world. So we take in food right through our mouths, through the outside world, and it works it, uh, through the outside world, and it works its way through us and then exits. Um, and so, so those, in many ways, those bacteria that live inside our gut are outside of our bodies. And so the, the interface between the gut um, and our bodies, and, and therefore our immune system in the world is happening in the gut. Um, and so we interact with the world in many ways through our gut. And so having this, it's becoming increasingly evident that having the right balance of bacteria in our guts is very important for regulating the immune system. Um, you know, we think, Perhaps one um, underlying cause of the increasing incidence of MS could be antibiotic use. So the idea that we treat patients for all sorts of infections that may or may not need antibiotics, when we do that, we're wiping out not just the bad infections, but the good gut flora, we, flora meaning um, the bugs that live in our body. And so there's, there's, there's a growing body of research to show that having the right gut bugs um, is important in regulating the immune system. Even things like parasites, which we, the word itself evokes a negative idea, but, but parasites are, are um, complex organisms that um, have um, means to regulate our immune systems as well. So they, they, they actually produce um, uh, uh, proteins and other chemicals that calm our immune system down. And um, there's been some research in actually reintroducing some benign parasites mm -hmm. into people to help regulate their immune system. So, you know, we need to live in balance with these little guys. Um, and I think there's, you know, increasing understanding that that's the case. And, and, you know, this is also our interface between diet, 
um, and our immune system. So what we eat feeds these gut bacteria. Um, and so this is a this is a this is the the interface between what we do, how we act, how we live, and our immune systems. Well, there's MS is one of many autoimmune diseases. So is there work being done to determine which bacteria or parasite matches up to MS and which may match up to other immune disorders? Yes, absolutely. So that's the question. It, you know, um, it appears to be about the balance among many different bacteria and, and parasites. Um, they, they, they find their own balance with each other and they find their own balance within our guts. Um, but this is, this is an area that I think is very promising um, for the future. And I think people are interested in because they certainly feel empowered to um, culture their own bacteria. I think of it as a little farm that, um, you know, it does good things for us and we have to tend it just like we tend our gardens. What can you tell us about the protective sheath around the nerve fibers? Is this something that we're all born with? Yes. So, so the, so the, the um, underlying physiology of what's happening in MS is that our um, immune cells are learning um, within our bodies and they're being miseducated and um, to, to attack brain tissues. And when they get into our brain and our spinal cord, they recognize this fatty coating um, that surrounds all of our nerve cells. And this is called myelin. Um, and um, it is the insulation on the wires of our brain and our spinal cord. Um, and this insulation is very important, just like insulation on any wire. It helps protect um, the the uh, information that's traveling through the wire, and it uh, the um, immune system learns to actually damage that fatty myelin and strip it off the 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 nerve cell, and that leads to these areas of scars. So within these scars that we mentioned, these so-called lesions, what we see is the loss of myelin or demyelination. So as you read about multiple sclerosis, you'll see it's called a demyelinating disease. It's not the only um, disease of demyelination, but it is certainly the most common. So does the myelin not regenerate? It doesn't grow back on its own? That's a great question, yeah. So, so when our brains are developing, um, our nerve cells uh, become myelinated. So our, our bodies um, um, place this fatty insulation along the nerve cells, and that's throughout our brain development. It actually continues well into our young adult life. So myelination continues to occur throughout our teenage years. This is one of the reasons that our teenagers um, uh, our children turn into monsters and then turn into adults is the is the finalization of uh, the myelinization of um, particularly the frontal lobes, which are the parts of the brain that control our sort of baser instincts. Um, but uh, so this so this myelination occurs uh, with demyelination. The body can actually repair that myelin, but it doesn't do it as effectively as when it originally developed throughout our development. So, so it, in fact, this is one of the reasons why our attacks of MS um, evolve over days to weeks as that, as that myelin is being damaged, but then improve over days to weeks to months because there, there's remyelination that's occurring. Now, what we one area of, of, of MS treatment that we continue to struggle with is enhancing remyelination. 
So, you know, we would like to find treatments that improve the remyelination um, after attacks or in progressive disease. And we've largely not been successful in doing that. What advance in MS do you think would make the most difference to the most number of people? We are very lucky to have many effective um, disease-modifying therapies for relapsing forms of MS. Um, in fact, we have about nine different mechanisms of action, and I can't even keep track of how many total drugs. It's in, it's in the 20s. Um, what we aren't good at is treating progressive MS. So most disability in folks who have MS, especially as they get older, is going to be from progressive MS. Um, and we don't have good treatments to, to greatly slow that progression or to reverse that progression. Um, and that's really where we need to be focusing now is the development of, of medicines and treatments that help us to repair damage that's already done. Um, and that's something I very much want for my patients. Well, this has been a terrific overview. Thank you so much to Dr. Corey McGraw. He's a neurologist at Upstate with expertise in multiple sclerosis. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, women have a new birth control option. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The FDA has approved a new non-hormonal birth control method that women can use on demand, and we'll hear more about this new medication called Fexi from Dr. Renee Mestad. She's an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Mestad. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How does this contraceptive Fexi work? So, Fexi is a contraceptive gel. It, um, but within an hour before having vaginal intercourse, the woman is going to place it in her vagina. Um, I hate to say inject, but it comes in an applicator similar to what we use. We use tampons. Um, so it, it's placed inside the vagina and it sits there. Um, it is a couple of, it's about three different fairly light acids that help to maintain the acidic um, pH within the vagina, which is the vagina's normal environment. Um, when sperm are introduced into the vagina, when a woman has sex and they ejaculate, um, it, the acidity of the gel helps keep the sperm from being able to move up through the vagina and into the cervix and into the uterus to fertilize an egg. So um, it doesn't necessarily kill the sperm the way a spermicide does, but it basically incapacitates them and makes them unable to do their thing. Um, semen itself is very alkaline or very basic. So if anyone remembers back to their 10th grade chemistry, um, it, which makes a, a basic environment makes it very easy for um for sperm to move around and, and work the way up the cervix interesting so well how does this end up how effective is it at preventing pregnancy so with absolute perfect use in a in a vacuum if you will um 
it's about 93% effective, but with typical use, you know, used out in the real world by real people, um, it's about 86% effective, which is pretty good. I was going to ask how that compares to other methods, the pill or the condoms. It, it, that's pretty good compared. So the pill is about 92 to 98% effective, depending on how well you remember to take it. Um, condoms are about 85% effective and, you know, probably because this is so user dependent. Um, whereas like the IUD or the subdermal contraceptive implant or sterilization are 98 to 99% effective. Does this protect against any sexually transmitted diseases? It does not, unfortunately. Okay, but as a contraceptive, now you described the injection sort of like a tampon applicator. How much of this gel is inserted and is there a color or odor or can, can you describe the consistency? I mean, what's um, it like? It's thick enough that it adheres to the inside of the vagina. So it doesn't become runny once it experiences body heat. And um, so it will stay in place. It won't just become a, a runny liquid that'll dribble its way out within the hour. Um, but it also doesn't require any, you know, one doesn't have to wash it out or anything like that. Um, it really is just um, three fairly natural acids um, and since the vagina likes to have an acidic environment, um, it won't affect the balance within the vagina itself. So, you know, women who have lots of problems with bacterial vaginosis, which is the vaginal discharge that smells like fish, um, part, of their, part of what makes it easier for the bacteria to grow is a very basic or a high pH um, uh, vaginal environment. So, something like Fexi. I wouldn't recommend it for use to prevent BV, but it won't cause things like bacterial vaginosis because it really does help to to um, create the environment that the vagina prefers. Why might a woman prefer a non-hormonal method like Fexi over a hormonal method like the pill? There's a there's a large variety of reasons. Um, some women hormones um, aren't necessarily safe for them. Um, the most common hormonal methods are also combined hormonal methods. They have both estrogen and progesterone, which can increase their risk of having blood clots or if they have problems with like high blood pressure or kidney disease or something like that. Um, other women, if they have problems with their liver, then estrogen and progesterone are, are not good for them. Um, some women just don't like messing with their menstrual cycles. Um, or how they feel on hormonal methods. Some women don't like the idea of of messing with their hormones at all. So, um, and some women just they just want something that they can you know have around for whenever they need it. Um, you know, particularly um, you know a lot of couples uh who are monogamous and aren't using condoms anymore but don't want to use hormones and no one wants to be sterilized yet um it's it's a nice method um for a, a compliant couple who will use it regularly routinely whenever they have sex um, when they're supposed to which is within an hour before having sex um without having to use condoms without having to have you know have hormones um and and just use it when you need it
so that if you don't need it, then you don't have to use it at that particular moment. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Renee Mastad. She's an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate, and we've been talking about the new non-hormonal method of birth control for women called FEXI, that's P-H-E-X-X-I. So now I'd like to have you go over how a woman uses FEXI. It, it's described as on-demand, so you take it only when you're planning to have vaginal sex within the next hour. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. So if you're not sexually active, then you don't need to use it. Um, it is a good idea if you ever have any kind of sexual activity to have it ready. So you talk to your doctor because it does require a prescription at this time. Um, and each box has 12 pre-filled applicators uh, in them. So, and they're foil wrapped. They do not require refrigeration, which is kind of nice. I mean, I imagine you probably don't stick them up in your attic where the temperature fluctuates dramatically, but, um, but you don't have to have any kind of, you know, fancy refrigeration or anything like that. Um, and but like I said, if you're someone who is remotely sexually active, you really should have them around so that when you do have sex, they're available to you. You don't have to call your doctor. Get a prescription sent in, go to the pharmacy, particularly if it's 10 p.m. on Sunday. Um, and if you're, as soon as you're planning on having sex, then you, um, like I said, you take the applicator, which is similar to, again, like when you have used tampons or um, a lot of women who've used uh, yeast infection creams or other uh, vaginal creams, uh, the applicator just fits up into the vagina and you push the little plunger in it. It's left up inside the vagina. How long do you have to wait after you apply it to have sex? I know you have the one hour window, but do you need to give it time? No, not at all. Okay. And, um, but the, the big thing is, is it's good for only one vaginal sexual encounter. So if uh, you, a woman and a partner are going to go out again, then she'll need to put more in. And it's got to go in before um, penetration. Um, not afterwards. I see. Now, does this substance provide lubrication? Uh, potentially. Um, okay. You know, it, if it just it kind of depends on how badly the couple needs lubrication. Um, for instance, it won't necessarily be as good if you know, say maybe the woman is breastfeeding and she's already very very dry. She may still need some additional lubricant. Um, but for most couples, it should be sufficient. Do you know, I know this is a new uh, medication. Will health insurers pay for FEXI the way they pay for some contraceptives? Um, the company is working very hard to get it on. They're trying to get it on to the, um, the ACA uh, list of required um, contraceptives. Because the, uh, the Affordable Care Act does require that at least one version of every method of contraceptive is available to um, on insurance uh, with insurance coverage. So they're working on um, being included on that. So it just kind of depends at this point in time. But probably eventually. It sounds yeah. like it, it would be. Now, let's talk about um, side effects. And I wonder if they might be different for young women versus older women. Um, what, what can they expect in terms of side effects? Um, 
so some women may experience some degree of light vaginal burning or tingling or other sensations. Um, again, because they are a, you know, it's, it's three different mild acids. Um, they should not experience any kind of blistering or bleeding or, or anything like that. Um, women who do have frequent problems with uh, bladder infections or urinary tract infections or UTIs um, will probably want to reconsider using these, uh, this particular method, at least theoretically at this point in time. Um, not necessarily that it's going to cause more bladder infections, but there may be more sensitivity. Um, on the part of the, the woman herself, partners may or may not also experience some, um. Tingling or, or mild burning sensations or something like that as well. Is there anyone who should not take Fexi male or female? Is there any uh, condition that if you have this, you should definitely not not use Fexi. At this point, or we're just working right now with women who have frequent bladder infections. Um, and if you're find that you're somehow allergic to um, the gel itself or the applicator. Now, I know this is sort of going to give women a, a new option. At this point in time, what are the most popular methods of birth control in America? So far in America, it's still birth control pills and sterilization. Um, the LARC methods are becoming more popular. So LARC or what we call long-acting reversible contraceptives. So that includes um, all the intrauterine devices as well as the subdermal contraceptive implant, which in the United States, the only one available is, is Nexplanon. Um, and that's because they are, they are effective anywhere from three to, to 10 years, just depending on which method is being used. And once they're, um, they become a, a part of the, of the woman's body, one way or another, whether they're in the uterus or um, underneath her, skin in her arm and they are not user dependent. So they um, don't tend to get affected as much by medications. They don't get affected at all by a woman's erratic day schedule. Um, they aren't affected by whether or not she loses her insurance. They aren't affected by whether or not she loses her job, and doesn't have any money to pay for any co-pays. Um, or, you know, a young woman falls off her parents' insurance. It's those things don't affect how well they work. Um, that unfortunately affect how well women are able to use a lot of other methods. Um, but they are easily reversed in the event that a woman wants to become pregnant. Um, we can remove the IUD or remove the implant itself. And of course, sterilization is is very, very effective, but that is permanent. So um so those methods are, the LARC methods are catching up. Um, I don't know that they'll ever be as popular as the birth control pills. Birth control pills have been around for, you know, I mean, my, my mother was one of the earlier users and she's in her 70s now. So it's been around, everyone knows someone who's used it or they've used it themselves. So a lot of women still feel fairly comfortable with that. They often start with the birth control pill. Do you think Fexi's going to, going to appeal to women? Um, I, I think it will ultimately um, again, because um, it 
it provides women their own autonomy. Um, you know, the LARC methods are great, but when a woman decides she wants to be pregnant, then she doesn't want to have to deal with getting a doctor's appointment to, to make that possible. So, um, you know, if she has, if she, she does need, whether she's an appointment or a prescription to get the Fexi, but once she has it, she uses it when she needs it and if she wants to. Um, so, and eventually I'm sure it will no longer require a prescription. So it will be as available as, as um, um, condoms and spermicides as well. Oh, well, that's good to know. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Renee Mastad, an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Here's some expert advice from Dr. Scott Weiner from Upstate Medical University. How can kidney stones be prevented? So to prevent kidney stones, we have to recognize that about 70% of stones are made of calcium oxalate. That's the most common type of stone. So for generic advice for preventing these types of stones, we want to maintain consistently high urine output every day. So that means you have to drink enough to pee 2.5 liters or just over a gallon every single day. On hot days, you might need to drink a little bit more. We also want to maintain a low salt or sodium diet, and we want to try to limit our protein to no more than four ounces at each sitting. You've been listening to urologist Scott Weiner from Upstate Medical University. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. K.B. Ballantyne's sixth poetry collection, The Light Tears Loose, can be found at Blue Light Press. The poem she gave us after surgery is a meditation on all we see and feel as we recover. Here is After Surgery. A pair of swans preen slide swiftly across the blue cool of lake. Soon they will taste the frost before it comes and rise together finding a thermal draft that guides them to warmer climes. The lamps on each bedside table beckon, downy softness sandwiched between them where letters turn to words that take dreams to flight, promise of light before the final dark. Following the trail as sure as scent, the wolf of smoky fur and tender heart nuzzles his mate. She licks his ear while they pause beneath an evergreen leaning with the weight of snow. Branches bristle, spear the feathery mounds. Toes seek solace in fuzzy comfort, left and right slippers waiting by the door. Twelve hours constricted in stiff leather, pressing concrete, pleads a soothing escape to stretch and wriggle. Seahorses couple, anchor themselves in the reeds, the grass. Undulating, they wrap around each other and daily dance invisible currents, nodding to blennies and gobies, to kelp clinging across the rock and sand. I didn't know I was grateful, with my eyes and ears and lungs, to watch the moon twin the sun. Two flawed globes that balance night and day, lead the seasons, reel against the dizziness that unbalances my new walk my new life. 
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.